Good morning again. As always, it is a joy and privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to Isaiah chapter 52? Isaiah 52. We're now coming to the end of this season of Advent. and We've been reflecting for four weeks now on the promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus, particularly the promise of a seed that would come to crush the serpent's head, and then the three promises of a prophet, a king, and a priest. We've seen now that Jesus is the seed of the woman who defeats the spiritual forces of evil in this world and is even now putting them in subjection under His feet. We've seen that Jesus is the true prophet, the one who sees this world and where it is going clearly, and who perfectly reveals the Father to us. And we've seen that Jesus is the true King who reigns and rules over us and defeats and defends us from all His and our enemies. And in this final week, we are going to look at the promise of a priest, The one who wouldn't just come to cover our sin with another animal sacrifice, but would himself become the final and full sacrifice of our sins. The passage this week is from Isaiah 52 to 53, and the only problem with passages that are so rich like this one is that we only really get to scratch the surface of them, but no worries, we will come back to this passage again and again over the years here at Trinity as we already have. But as we look at this passage today, I want you to remember the situation of Israel. I mentioned last week that the promise of a king came in a time of success for Israel. It came at the height of David's reign. It came at a time of joy and of peace for Israel. That is not at all the situation when Isaiah prophesies. Instead, the northern kingdom of Israel has been taken into exile by Assyria, and the southern kingdom of Judah is looking at the same result in the not-too-distant future. In the midst of their failure and despair, Isaiah floods God's people with his promises of hope for the future. Many of those promises focus on a coming king, a coming Messiah who would rule in righteousness and bring peace. But at the climax of those promises, here in these verses, we learn that the servant of the Lord won't just be a king who conquers and protects from our enemies. He will also be a sacrifice who covers over our sin. If we mentioned the last several weeks, the promises of God are not one-dimensional. Jesus comes to fulfill our every need. And this week we see the need of our guilt and that Jesus is the only one who could truly atone for our sin. But before we look at this promise in Scripture, let's ask for God's help. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word and believe it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. 
This is Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13, and we'll go down through the end of chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth." By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at this passage and this idea of a priest today, we're going to look at it in much the same way that we've looked at the offices of prophet and of king. First, we're going to ask what is it that a priest does? And then we're going to ask, do we really need a priest? Then we'll see the teaching of Scripture that Jesus is our true priest. And then we'll ask this question that we've been asking in the midst of Advent. What are we waiting for? What is it that Jesus is still to do for us as our priest? So just like with prophets and kings, we need some background from the story of Scripture to understand what exactly a priest does. And the background for a priest begins at the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. 
Do you remember what Adam and Eve did right after they ate the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They hid. They hid from God. Genesis 3, 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they committed a crime. The word we use for people who have committed a crime is the word guilty. Adam and Eve were guilty of sinning against the God who created them and loved them. They were guilty of rebellion against their maker and king. And that declaration of guilty is an objective declaration. Adam and Eve rightfully deserved punishment for their sin. They deserved condemnation and the wrath of God. But there is another aspect of guilt that we all know. When someone is guilty, they feel guilty. And that's what we see Adam and Eve doing here. They know that they have sinned against God and that they have become guilty before Him, and so they hide. They run from God. And did you notice what the first thing they did was? They covered themselves. Verse 7 says that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We often try to cover ourselves by lying about what we did wrong or hiding the evidence. But you all know the feeling of wanting to physically hide yourself when you have done something wrong. You want to cover up. When a child does something wrong, they won't just divert their eyes, but they'll drop their whole head and sometimes even cover their face with their hands and their arms to hide themselves. This is the state that Adam and Eve were in. They were objectively guilty before God because of their sin. They deserved condemnation and the death that God told them they would receive if they ate of the fruit. But it didn't just lead to objective guilt. Their sin also led to the subjective feeling of being guilty, of knowing that they needed to be covered. Just a few verses later, after the curses, God does, in fact, cover them. The fig leaves they made for themselves are a poor, self-made excuse for a cover, like a child putting their arms over their head. So verse 21 says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This, in Genesis 3, is a precursor to the Old Testament sacrificial system for the people of God. Where did God get the garments of skins? He likely got them from animals. They are animal skins. In order for Adam and Eve to be adequately covered, something had to die. This is the heart of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Something else dies to cover the guilt 
of a sinner. And while God lays this all out in Exodus 20 at Mount Sinai with the giving of the law, probably the best example we get of this is actually just before that. Do you remember the last plague that God sent upon Egypt? The death of the firstborn, the tenth of the plagues. And God gives Israel, in the death of the firstborn, specific instructions for what they must do to avoid the plague themselves. He said that they needed to take a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish, and kill it, and spread its blood on their doorposts. And God says to them in Exodus 12, When I see the blood on your doorposts, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The death of that lamb, specifically signified by its blood, would cause God to pass over the Israelites so that the judgment that fell upon Egypt would not fall upon them. This is a precursor, again, to the sacrifices that God required. When you get to the end of the book of Exodus, and then especially to the book of Leviticus, God gives Israel specific and detailed instructions for how they are to make regular sacrifices for their sins. And it's easy for us to get bogged down in the details and the, the minutia of the system of sacrifices, But we need to remember that this system of sacrifices was a gracious gift from God to his people. God made a way for his people to cover their sins. He created a process where something else died to cover the guilt of his people. That's the heart of the sacrificial system. It begins with the real guilt and condemnation that I deserve. And the good news is that God has made a way to cover over that guilt. He's created a way to transfer that guilt to something else so that the penalty, the judgment, the condemnation I deserve would fall on it rather than on me. And this is where God creates the office of a priest. The first explicit place God institutes the office of a priest is in Exodus 28. And the primary job of a priest was to make those sacrifices for the sin of the people of God. They did plenty of other things. They prayed for God's people. They regularly instructed God's people in His Word. But the detail that we get in Scripture is almost all concerning the kinds of sacrifices they were to make, how they were to make them, and when they were to make them. The short and simple way to say it is that God instituted a perpetual office in Israel to deal with the problems of sin and guilt among his people. And that was the office of a priest. The sacrifices the priest offered took place all year long and in many different situations. The book of Leviticus spells out all those different scenarios, but the priest's central sacrifice the one that was all-encompassing, took place only once a year on the Day of Atonement. This is found in Leviticus 16. And for this annual sacrifice, the covering of all the sins of the people, it was only the high priest who was allowed to make that sacrifice. 
And you can go to Leviticus 16, you can see the details of what the high priest was to do. But for us, the important thing is to see that there were two movements, two actions of the high priest in making that sacrifice. The first of those moves was that he would make the sacrifice. He would kill the animal on the day of the atonement. On the day of atonement, the priest would take a goat for the sins of the people, and he would kill the goat. He would do this on the altar in the court of the tabernacle. Usually, this is all we think of when we think of the sacrifices. But the second movement, the second action, is just as important for the priest's work. The high priest wasn't done when he made the sacrifice. After he killed the goat, he would bring its blood into the Holy of Holies, the central place in the tabernacle where the very presence of God dwelt. And there he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. He would present the blood as the evidence of the sacrifice to show that the necessary atonement had been made for the sins of the people. Both of those movements, both of those actions were required for the priest to make atonement for the people. This was the role of the priest. This is what he did in his office. He killed animals and then presented their blood before the presence of God. This was the way that God ordained to cover the guilt of his people. And so the obvious question for us is, do we really need a priest? Do we really need a sacrifice for sins to deal with our guilt? If we're honest, this can seem a little bit barbaric and even primitive. Killing animals to appease God. As I said when we looked at the office of a prophet, this is 2022. Aren't we past all that kind of stuff? Don't we live in a more civilized, more advanced society? And in response, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, have we found a better solution to our guilt? Do people live in our world like their guilt has been dealt with? The truth is there are a lot of answers to this question. You have some people in our world who are convinced that there is nothing to feel guilty about. This is the authenticity crowd. They say that the real problem you have is that you go around feeling guilty about yourself when you have nothing to feel guilty for. You need to shake that feeling of guilt and just be yourself. Stop trying to cover yourself. You be you. And no one can tell you that there is anything that you need to be sorry for. That's one popular approach to dealing with guilt. Tell people that there isn't really anything wrong with them. And make guilt a merely psychological problem that we need to get past and bury. But there are plenty of people who try this approach and realize that it doesn't work. Try as they might, they cannot shake the feeling of guilt. The feeling that they have done something wrong and need forgiveness. So they try all kinds of ways to overcome their guilt. They might spend all their time beating themselves up for the wrong things they've done. Hoping that enough sorrow and harm might make the feeling of guilt go away. Others think they can get graded on a curve. If other people are worse than me, then maybe I won't feel so bad. 
So they put people down and put on a show of how great they are. Then the karma approach is to try to do enough good things that might outweigh all the bad things that you've done. What all these approaches have in common is that they take the same approach that Adam and Eve took. They are sewing their own fig leaves together to cover their guilt. They are relying on themselves to deal with the guilt problem instead of accepting what God has offered to cover over our sin. So do we really need a sacrifice for sin? Yes. You will look the world over trying to find another way to alleviate your guilt, to numb the feeling of condemnation, but God has given a solution to our guilt. He has made a way for us to be forgiven, for a sacrifice, a substitute to pay the penalty for the wrong that we have done. And while we've looked at the Old Testament sacrificial system, we need to turn now to the ultimate answer, the ultimate solution that God gives for our guilt, that Jesus Christ is our true priest. But what we will quickly see is that Jesus does not fulfill the office of a priest in the same way that the Old Testament priests fulfilled their roles. It's not just that he makes better sacrifices. Do you remember what we saw when we looked at the office of a prophet? It's not just that Jesus is a messenger from God giving us a better message. He's not just giving us God's word. He is God's word. Jesus was both the content and the deliverer of that content to us. And that's what we see when we turn to the New Testament to see Jesus as the true priest. He isn't simply the one making sacrifices. Jesus himself will be the sacrifice for our sins. In John chapter 1, we're introduced to John the Baptist, who is a prophet preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. And as John is doing this, he sees Jesus coming toward him one day, and he cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the fulfillment of that mysterious language we saw in Isaiah 52 and 53. Isaiah is prophesying about the servant of the Lord, this man who will come to deliver God's people. But as he tells us about this man, the imagery shifts. It changes into the image of a sacrificial lamb. Read with me, beginning in Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Remember the priests in Leviticus 16, putting the sins of the people upon the goat before it was slaughtered. And in this passage, we hear that the Lord has laid on his servant the iniquity of us all. 
While there are several places in the New Testament that show that Jesus is the sacrifice for sins, there is no place more explicit than the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is continually showing that everything God gave in the Old Testament was in preparation for the coming of Jesus. And so it contrasts the sacrifices of the Old Testament with the once-for-all-time sacrifice of Jesus. In chapter 10, the author points out that the animal sacrifices never stopped. They went on year after year, and he says the reason why is that it is impossible for the blood of boats of excuse me for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins but he says when Christ appeared as a high priest he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption then he goes on as it is He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When Jesus died on the cross, his sacrifice wasn't like the Old Testament sacrifices that had to be made year after year after year. And the reason was that his blood actually accomplished something. His blood actually had the power, the efficacy, to take away sins. Jesus' one sacrifice paid for all the sins of all his people, past, present, and future. Notice the phrase in Hebrews 9.12. It says, By means of his own blood, he secured an eternal redemption. There is no expiration date on Jesus' sacrifice. There is no limit to the payment he made for your sins. He isn't a goat or a bull. He is the eternal Son of God who is infinitely perfect in righteousness and holiness. Your sin and my sin are certainly great. But how foolish we are to think that our sins are greater than Jesus could pay for. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He has secured for us an eternal redemption in which he has covered over all our sins. But what about now? Jesus came once in his first advent and died on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sins and covered over your guilt. As Paul says in Romans 8, what we heard today in our assurance of pardon, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But is that all Jesus does as our priest? Does he simply become the sacrifice who pays for our sins? Remember that the role of the priest had two movements for the making of the sacrifice. The first movement, the first action, was the killing of the animal. At the altar, he would slaughter the animal as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But do you remember what the priest would do next? In the second action, he would bring the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and present it at the mercy seat. He would come into the presence of God with the blood of the sacrifice 
as a way to show that atonement had been made for their sins. Where is Jesus now? He is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Do you know what Jesus is doing there? He's actually doing a lot of things. He's ruling and reigning over the whole world and particularly over the church. He's putting his enemies under his feet in subjection. He's pouring out his Holy Spirit upon his people. But the book of Hebrews tells us he is doing something else. Something continually. Jesus is interceding for us. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 says, He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the second movement, that second action that Jesus makes as our high priest. His sacrifice has been made. It is a once-for-all-time sacrifice that is sufficient to pay for all of our sins, past, present, and future. But after he made that sacrifice, he entered into the Holy of Holies. Not the earthly copy, but the real thing in heaven, the actual throne room of God the Father. And there he stands, day and night, presenting his completed sacrifice at the mercy seat of the Father, on your behalf. I mentioned earlier that people in our culture don't know what to do with their guilt. They don't know what to do with their sins and failures. They have a sense of the holiness of God, even if they deny His existence, and so their guilt hangs over them. But everything they try to relieve that guilt, to cover over that guilt, doesn't work. Brothers and sisters, how often do we fall into that same despair? We know that Jesus has forgiven our little sins, our pride, our white lies, but the big ones still hang over us. We try to ignore them, or to compare ourselves to others, or to do enough good works to soothe our conscience. Dear Christian, you have a Savior who has made a sacrifice for your sins. He's not a goat or a bull, but the precious Son of God. He made that once-for-all sacrifice 2,000 years ago. But right now, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, you are beckoned to look to the heavens. There stands your Savior, the Lamb of God before the mercy seat of the Father, day and night, presenting the sufficiency of His sacrifice for you. He is interceding for you. He sees your sins and your failures, every one of them. And in the face of them, He says, this is enough. This is enough. My death was enough to cover over your sins. I was pierced For your transgressions, I was crushed for your iniquities. I took the chastisement you deserved so that you could have peace. By my wounds, you have been healed. My sacrifice is enough. Brothers and sisters, would you look to him? Look to him to cover your sin. 
Look to him as your great high priest, the only one who could and has truly made atonement. Look to him and know the peace that only he can give. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you that when you looked on us in our sin, you did not abandon us. But instead, you covered us. And we know, Lord, that you didn't just cover us with the skins of animals or the blood of bulls and goats, but you covered us with the blood of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, we thank you that you did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled yourself to the point of death on a cross. We pray that we would not disdain your sacrifice, but we would see in your sacrifice the atonement for all of our sins. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.